1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, it's been a, it's awesome. We have one more chapter. We're going to make it through 1 Corinthians, so give yourselves a round of applause for that wonderful trip that we went on to Corinth. I was listening to another pastor preach on Corinth, and he called it Californians. He called it First Californians, because it's pretty similar to uh, California nowadays. So we are coming to a place where we're seeing that uh, God has been moving and using Paul as his instrument to reveal his truth. And every week we see a little bit uh, different focus. We've seen focuses on how the spirits work in the church and how we're to work together and how does the body communicate in unity and working together in the mission of the gospel. And so today we're going to focus in on the afterlife. How many of you are looking forward to the afterlife? I am. I am looking forward to it. It is something that when we say, come, Lord Jesus, come, we're talking about when he comes, all this is over. No more tears, no more pain, no more bills, uh, no more of the issues of this life. It's going to be amazing. This is all preparation for eternity. Every day is a day to get ready. And so the focus is uh, the afterlife. One of the things that's interesting to me, and, and you've probably experienced this too, is there's a lot of views of the afterlife. And I've had lots of people in my life that had different views of what happens to you when you die. And as I read through the New Testament, I see that the Holy Spirit, through Christ, through Paul, through Peter, uh, through different disciples, he communicates as, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. I don't want you to be uninformed. He wants us to be aware of what's going on in the world around us. He wants us to be aware of the beliefs of this world. Uh, we're told that the Nicolaitans, that, that, that there was a commendability because they rejected the teachings that were false. And so we must know what's true and what's false. Uh, understanding is part of, of the knowledge of the gospel. We need to understand what the gospel is and how we apply it to our life. I love to learn. I love to, to figure out why people think the way they think or what motivates them or what leads them to do the things that they do. And I don't know if you've really done much research in this area, but when I was in seminary, uh, I took a class in world religions. My father was a campus pastor at Penn State. There were every religion pretty much was represented there. I've been to other places in the world where uh, Christianity isn't the predominant religion. When we were in Africa, it was 98% Muslim. And so being in those places and learning those things, I think it is so helpful for us to know uh, this question of what happens to us when we die. What are the views? What are the beliefs? What do people hold in the world today? And so really briefly, I just want to give you a synopsis uh, of what the world's views are on this issue of where we're going to go when we die. First, I'm going to start with humanism. Humanism is the belief that billions and billions of years ago, nothing blew up and produced everything that we see today. And it was random, and it's by chance, and it will all one day reabsorb and may happen again. We're not sure. But the belief is when you die, you disappear. That this is all you get. That the moment you die, you go out of existence. Every thought, every action, everyone you've loved, every memory you've made, are gone, never to be returned to. And unfortunately, in our country, about 30% of people now claim that this is their worldview of what happens to them when they die. 30% of people, that means three out of 10 people believe that they just disappear. There's nothing after this life. Um, there's no accountability for life. This is just a, a, a cosmic accident. And it's really just 
survival of the fittest, live, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you'll die and disappear. And so that's one perspective. The Buddhists, I don't know if you've ever known a Buddhist. I've, I've known Buddhists. Uh, they believe in the eight stages of rebirth, earth into water, water into fire, fire into air, air into consciousness, consciousness into luminance, luminance into radiance, and radiance into immense. Immense is the transparency and then reverse. So basically you move into a state of being one with the universe just to go into reverse. And this is their view of reincarnation. So it's an eternal cycle of going through different stages of being. The Hindu also believes in reincarnation, uh, but to them, death is at the center of the force. Death is the most powerful thing that there is. And as you die, uh, if you live a worthy life, then hopefully you get absorbed into the universe as well. To come back is actually a curse. So if you come back as an animal or you come back as a person, they see that as a curse. So they do not see reincarnating into someone else as a very positive thing. And that's important to know. Wicca religion, which was big in New England where I lived for my high school years and knew a lot of people that practice Wicca, we actually had some people last year that came to the conference teaching about the Wicca faith and how to, to have a relationship and share the gospel with people that follow the Wicca faith. This is witchcraft. Wiccans believe in the cycle of reincarnation that eventually culminates in the union of the divine source. There's a popular Wicca song that says this, We all come from the goddess, and to her we shall return, like a drop of rain flowing to the ocean. And actually, not too far from us is one of the major areas where Wicca faith is practiced here in Florida. And this is a view that many have, that you're to be absorbed back into the universe. Re New Age is very similar, reincarnation of the soul, and there's, it's more the essence of the person living on through many years. For the Jewish faith, some believe in a bodily resurrection, some do not. Most Jews in the United States are more focused on the here and now and not as concerned about what happens to you after you die. The Muslims believe in four stages. They believe that there is a pre-birth that you are an, a soul before you are born, that you have a life, and you have a soul waiting for judgment, and the soul uh, in the new body either goes to heaven or hell. And so they believe, based on your deeds in this life, when you die, your soul will either go to heaven and hell, but your soul existed prior to your body. Mormons believe, founded by Joseph Smith, in 1844, Joseph Smith gave a sermon called the King Follett Discourse. He taught that God, our God, was a man on another planet and that he lived a good life and that he planted the human spirits. Uh, he had spiritual babies and then they were planted here on earth. And they believe that the goal is to become the God of your own universe. The Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that souls are eternal, that, that they're not eternal, that your soul will be annihilated that most people outside of the 144,000 that's talked about in Revelation will be annihilated. Your soul will no longer exist. You'll, it was if you had never been. Roman Catholics believe in purgatory, where souls are preparing for heaven. And then the Universalist believes that everyone dies and goes to heaven. And so this morning, these are the major views of the world. This is what people believe happens to you the moment you die. The reason we are gathered here this morning is because 2,000 years ago, 
A man came to earth, and he claimed to be God. Emmanuel, God with us. He lived in a perfect life. At the end of his perfect life, he allowed himself to be put on a cross. And he claimed that he had to go to the cross to pay for the sins of mankind. That he was dead for three days, and on the third day he arose again. And he was visible to over 400 people. And he said that I have conquered sin and death, that you may have eternal life. For God so loved this world that he gave me, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so these are all opportunities. You know, in life we have so, so little control, right? You didn't choose where you would be born. I didn't choose where I'd be born. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose almost anything in your life was given to you by God. But what he allows you to do is to choose what you will believe. What will you put your faith in today? And we live in a world, unfortunately, and this is probably one of the saddest things for me as a pastor, saddest thing as a Christian, as a Christ follower, how few people even stop to think about this question. How few people are distracting themselves. So many people are distracting themselves with entertainment, with their job, with relationships, getting so busy in the things of life that they're not considering where their eternity will be. Ten out of ten people will die. None of us escape this life without dying. Outside of the rapture, that's it. And so this morning when we gather together, this is such a quintessential, such an important topic for us as believers, because this really defines us. This, out of all the things that we are here uh, to discuss and to focus our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on, the resurrection is at the very center of what it is to be a believer in Christ. That yes, this world is broken, and yes, it is messy, but there is hope, and there is a future. And we need to recognize that we can't attack those who have different perspectives. We can't beat them up with the Bible, but we can lovingly have uh, spiritual conversations that lead to questions of how do you know? What is truth? How can you be certain? What are you putting your faith in for your eternal destiny, your eternal life, your eternal soul? And so this morning, as we dive into God's Word, this is one of my favorite areas, because I believe out of all the areas, there's nothing that comes close to what Christ offers us. There's no other, uh, there's no TV station that's going to promise you something greater. There's no entertainer that's going to promise you something greater. There's no even world religion that's going to promise you something greater than what Christ has offered us on the cross. This is the most amazing gift that any of us could ever even conceive. And so we want to reflect on that. And we want wisdom and guidance and understanding as we look to God's word, that he would show us truth, that it wouldn't just be here, but it would be here, and we would go there, sharing this truth. So let's precede his word in prayer and ask him to lead us and guide us. Father God, we thank you for this day that you've created. We thank you that every day is a gift, that you tell our hearts to beat, you tell the gravity to hold us to the earth. Uh, you are at the center of the cell itself, keeping its form and function. Lord, you are the, the God of creation, the God of eternity, the God of yesterday, today, and forever. You've never changed and you never will change. Your, world is, your word is eternal and it is life-transforming. It does not return void. And Lord, as we study your word together, we ask, Lord, that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would engage our minds, 
engage our souls, that, Lord, we would be passionately in love with you today, knowing that you have passionately shown your love to us, that while we were yet sinners, you died, that we would be free. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at what you had Paul to write to us, to the Corinth Church, but also to First Baptist Port Orange, I ask, Lord, that we would have ears that can hear, eyes that can see, and a heart that is tender to your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. The context is important. First century Corinth, it was a very uh, time of of a lot of evil things happening in this city. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of differing views. And so you had the Greeks who had had authority, and they were uh, those that were leading the ideas. They had all the new ideas, and, and they came up with a lot of the perspectives on thought. And you had the Romans, and these two cultures were very similar in many ways. And one of the things that they were in agreement on is that you will not be resurrected bodily. The Greeks did not believe that your body would be resurrected. They'd say, why would you want your body to be resurrected? There's no good thing that's going to come from your physical body. So the real thing is your spiritual life that you're going to live on. And they believed that there was a God named Thanatos. He's the God of death. That he would lead you to the underworld. And that for most, there was no hope of any kind of goodness in the afterlife. The Romans also believed in a very similar view of death, that death was just the moving on to another miserable existence. The Romans believed if you were in a position of authority, if you were the emperor, you were a deity, and you were the only one to have a a perfected or a blessed eternity. And so it was miserable in life, it would be miserable in death, that was the lot that you were given. And so you can see this message may be pretty appealing to the Greeks and to the Romans because not only did they live in a system that was abusive and would uh, undermine their human dignity and undermine their value, but even their eternity was set in, in, with no hope, no future. Then you get into the, the Greek Orthodox, the Greek Uh, I mean, the the Jewish Orthodox, the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And why are the sad, you see, sad? Do you know why they're sad? They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in eternity. (laughs) They did not believe that there was any life. They were very uh, scientific in their thinking. They said, look, I I will be born, I will live a certain amount of time, I will die, and I will no longer live anymore. I look at the world and nature, and I believe that this is what it reveals, is that there is a time where you live and you die, and that's it. And so the Sadducees did not believe in angels. They did not believe that there's any spiritual realm. They did not believe in the spiritual element of the Jewish faith. They thought if you can live these laws and live these rules, then you'll have a decent life, and that's all you get. And they were in the Sanhedrin. They were part of the leadership of the Jews. And so you have the Sadducees and you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees would use their power and authority, even though they did believe in in eternity, they did believe that God had a place for them. They would abuse that knowledge so that they could overpower the other people in their community. And so it was not an easy situation for the Corinth church. There were people that thought they were stupid to believe there was anything after this life. There was a group of people, even within their relatives, that would say, you're a fool to believe what you believe. And it was very hostile towards the idea of this Jesus being the Messiah, that Jesus would save them. And so with that as the backdrop, we can understand now as we go into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul was very aware of the consequence of faith. 
Paul was very aware of the consequence of faith. Are you aware of the consequence of your faith? Are we aware of the consequence of others' faith? Do we recognize that this is no trivial question, but this is at the very base of what it is to be a believer? 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13 through 19, says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he has raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have to put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Why does Paul say that he should be pitied more than anyone? He goes to clarify it in verse 30. He says, why are we in danger every hour? If this is not true, if there's no resurrection of the body, if this is not a legitimate truth, uh, why are we in danger every hour? I have faced death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have fought wild beasts in Ephesus as were men. What good did that do me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul lays out a very clear teaching here. He says, look, we must all recognize that at the very base of our faith, it is the question of the resurrection. If Christ did not rise, we should not be in this room right now. If Christ did not rise, we should be home crying. If Christ did not rise, there is no hope for me, there is no hope for you, there is no hope for anyone. We are still lost in our sin with no way out. The resurrection is not true. We are the most to be pitied. Why? Because we've committed our lives to telling people about this. We've committed our hearts to following this no matter what it costs. We've committed our ways to Christ and said, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. If Christ did not raise, then we are lost in our sin and we are most to be pitied. And so we must understand this contrast this morning, how big a deal this is, how important of a conversation this is. Out of all the conversations that we are to have in life, determining Christ and his resurrection, what is the cross, what is the resurrection, is the single most important point in which we must come to a decision. There is not a single question outside of this that even compares to the importance of this Question of faith. Did Christ die on the cross? And did he raise bodily in three days? If so, all has changed. If so, there is hope. If not, then there is no hope. There is no future. I like the saying where it says, if there's no Jesus, there's no hope. But if you know Jesus, you know hope. And today, that's really where it's at. And my prayer is as we look at the world, 
That we don't just look at the world and say, well, how evil it is and how poor decision-making is happening everywhere we see and how uh, the world seems to be falling apart. I know when I look at the news, many of you looked at the news this morning and last night, and you see that there's a Hamas attacking Israel and, and that stokes that, that fire of the reality that there is, a, there is a unseen battle going on and that it is going to be culminated in Jesus' return and that we are on a timeline that we cannot stop. And we are headed to his return. And, and these things, these echoes that we hear in Israel are just the birth pains of our Christ's return. And it should remind us that we should not be distracted to the point we've forgotten the resurrection. The resurrection solves all of your problems. The resurrection uh, defuses the bomb of sin. It defuses the bomb of death. And it will do it for everyone you know. If you know someone in your life that every day they tell you how miserable this is, or their job's miserable, or their relationships are miserable, and what is the hope, and what is the future, and what the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to the United States is not a president or a mayor or a teacher. The answer is Jesus and those that are in those positions looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of their faith, as the guidance for what they're to do when they make decisions. This is at the very focal point of what it is to be a believer. What do we believe? We believe that we're lost in our sin, that we're headed for hell, and that Christ has died to set us free from that path. And that we will be resurrected. Do you realize you will be resurrected? Christ is the first resurrection. He is the first fruit, as we're about to see. He's the resurrection and the life. We will be resurrected. That This time, think about this, this time is so short. This time is but a vapor, it's but a breath. When we look back on this billions of years from now, we will say, that was so small. Wow, that went fast. God gives us the days that he gives us so that we can come to faith in Christ. And once we have faith in Christ, then we can live into his goodness and do the good that he's made us to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8, it says this, Now I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born in the wrong time, he also appeared to me, Paul. Jesus came on a mission. The mission was to save us from sin and death. He lived perfectly in every way. He went to the cross. He was dead. He rose from the grave. And then to demonstrate that this was a reality, he went and sought out his disciples. And he said, Thomas, feel where I was persecuted and I was put on the cross. Feel the wound of the nails. See that I am alive. And I am eating with you because I am flesh as you are now, but I am in my perfected state. I am in my resurrection. And this will happen to you 
if you confess and believe. Imagine if you would, in your mind, if you had a pill that would solve every disease possibly you could ever have. It would make you energized, happy, full of life, and you would never die, and you'd be fully satisfied at all moments. How much would that cost? How much would you pay to get that? How much would people pay to get that? How, what would you think of the person who had that and had received it freely and yet gave it to no one, but had more than enough for everyone? I think, and I'm, I would say me first in this guilt, we get numb to the resurrection. We get numb to the fact that we're not going to hell for those who have been saved. If anything should knock us over, should make us scream and shout for joy, should make us every single day say, can you believe this? Can you really believe this? Can you believe what Christ has done? Can you believe that I no longer will be separated from God eternally? That I now will be in a, a perfect relationship with him in his perfect re residence of heaven? That should stir our hearts. That should move us to compassion. That should move us to passion in sharing this message to those who don't know. How many people think that the, the, the bottle or the drugs or the sex or whatever is going to be the answer? And they seek it and seek it and seek it only to get deeper and deeper into lostness. There's a truth here that I believe we would be well served to pray that God will remind us of the power of the resurrection. Do we want to be numb to the resurrection? Do we want to live lives where we don't really understand how big a deal this is? This is the greatest news that there possibly could be. Is there greater news than the resurrection? You see, all these other world religions that I went through, none of them have the God becoming a man, dying for our sins, raising again. He does all the work. He does all of the payment. And he's the one who returns to give it to us. Therefore, you trust in him, not yourself. You realize almost every faith, including atheism, puts all the faith in the individual. Whereas the Bible says, put all your faith in Christ. Don't put it in your goodness or your righteousness or your, your ability to, to do better than the person next to you. Put all of your faith in Christ. Put your hope in Christ. Your righteousness is his righteousness. You're forgiven because he forgave you from the blood of his Sacrifice on the cross. This is the greatest possible news. There's no news like this. You know why this is such great news? Paul goes on to tell us in verse 55. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to highlight that verse. I want you to write that verse on your heart and your mind. I want you to put it in your car and in your bathroom. And the next time you feel miserable about life, and the next time you feel like life has overtaken you, and the next time you feel like things aren't going to get any better, read that verse. Remind yourself, death has no more victory. Sin has no more victory. Christ is greater than both, and it's not even close. 
Do not live as the world lives with no hope. Remind yourself each and every day of the gift of the resurrection, the gift of salvation. Remind yourself now, continually go over in your head that I am saved, I've been set free, I'm a child of the King, I am the son and daughter of the Father Most High. He loves me more than I could ever imagine. He has a desire for me to walk with him every day. And the only thing that would ever keep me from that is a choice to sin and rebel against him. Verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of, of those who have fallen asleep. I'm going to tell you this week, this is the one thing that was the aha moment for me. It really opened my eyes and I said, wow, I never thought of it like that. Maybe you're like me and you feel like you have to negotiate with God. God, I do some good things. You'll do some good things for me. God, I'll, I'll uh, say some prayers. I'll fast. I mean, I will be committed to my daily quiet time. I will be on point on everything. If then I'll be waiting for whatever you have for me. And so it's, a, it's this transaction. I'm trying to win God's favor. I'm trying to win God's approval. I'm trying to win this love from God. And what I realized when, when, when I looked at this, that Jesus is the first fruits, the idea here is, the idea here is, is right after the Passover, they would celebrate with the feast of first fruits. And it symbolized that God had provided already. He had already provided the fruit, and the first fruits were just a reflection of what he was going to continue to do. It wasn't earning his favor. He already showed you his favor. He had already showed you his love. The fruit was in abundance. You can't imagine what heaven's going to be like. You can't imagine what God has in store for you. You have no clue what your future holds. And the first fruit, this little taste you get now, this little smidge of a smidge of what heaven is, you get to taste. And that's the first little taste, but it's nothing compared to the full course, the main course. We don't have to earn it. He's already given it. What kind of father would I be if I'm only going to do nice things to you kids if you do nice things to me first? No. He is a father that at the beginning of time he had a plan to save us. Since the very start, before the world was even created, he had a plan to save us. Every moment of existence he's had a desire to know us and for us to know him. Every moment is another moment to love him. Every moment is another moment to know more about why you're here and what he wants you to do. And when you recognize, when you recognize I can celebrate everything that he gives me and that this first fruit, because Christ is the first fruit, because he's the death, burial, resurrection, he produces the fruit of heaven, and then we are now part of that tree. We are part of that vineyard. We are the fruit that he has produced. He's the first. We're part in the line. It's a beautiful picture. And it's a picture of stability in Christ. It's a picture of hope even when everything around us looks hopeless. And that we can remind ourselves the first fruits has already set us free. Do not live in bondage to fear. Do not live in bondage to the doubts that arise from this world. But live in the hope that Christ has already done the work. Christ has already won the battle. Christ has already set you free. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, when you confess and believe, uh, that's a once-done deal. He is the high priest. You only need him once to do the act. 
It's a one time you are saved and set free. Today, we do not need to do good to earn the resurrection. We do good because of Jesus' resurrection. If you grasp this, this is so valuable as a believer. Because maybe in your life, you thought it's about, if I do good, I'll get good. No. Christ was good, and he pulls you into his goodness. And he lets you walk in that. Today, do you see Christ as the first fruit? Do you recognize that the resurrection has revealed that it's all been settled? It's already done. We are just in preparation for his return. You cannot earn favor he has already given you. You cannot earn favor he has already given you. You can only live in that favor and recognize his love for you. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If I can encourage you every Sunday, I don't know where you are in your walk. My prayer is that you know Christ, that you've repented and believed. I can't assume that. And if you haven't, today is the day of salvation. Give your life to the Lord. Confess and believe. But if you are a child of the King, do not give up. He has not forgotten about you. He has not overlooked you. He is not ignoring you. He loves you today. He draws us together like this to declare his love for us. We sing his praises because of his love for us. He loved us first. He is the one that we worship. He is the one that we adore. But we gather to encourage each other. to don't, If you fell down, get back up. If, you, if, you've, if you've fallen into a trap, get out of the trap. Get back together. Let's keep moving towards him and towards his return. Be immovable, unshakable. People may question you. People may ridicule you. People may put you down because of your faith. You may feel you're isolated and lonely because no one seems to understand this gospel. But you're not alone, ever. I think there's an amazing Old Testament story where Elijah is he's with one of his... Uh, his servants, and the servant is scared because the army looks so great. And he prays to God, God, let this servant see your army. And all of a sudden, he sees these angels. He sees what we cannot see at this moment. But in faith, we know is there. When you find yourself in the darkest day, know that Christ's there with you. When you're in the bottom of the valley of the shadow of death, Recognize the light of the world is still there with you. You can't have a shadow without light. And so there will always be light if you're one of the childs of the king. So this morning, the resurrection leads me to this question for me and for us. What work does the Lord have for you in light of his resurrection. He raised that you may live. Now what does he want you to get busy doing in your life?
Does he want you to fear about the economy? Does he want you to fear about your health? Does he want you to focus all of your time and energy on things that are temporal? Or does he want you to think eternally? Does he want you at this moment to say, how shall I serve you, God? In these minutes, in these hours, in these days that I have left to your return, or I return to you, what do you have me to do? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I live you for you more committed? I believe if every Sunday we got together and all we did is says, Holy Spirit, show us what you'd have for us this week. And then whatever he showed us, we did it. The world would be a totally different place. God can take one second of your life and he can do more in that second than you do your entire life. But it's by faith. It's by understanding the power of the resurrection. Understanding the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What does he have for you today? Why are you here? Where are you going? What is at the heart of your faith? Questions to consider. What do you believe about the afterlife? If you were to die this moment, what do you believe would happen to you? What is afterlife? Are you certain? How does your faith shape how you live? How do your views of eternity affect your view of tomorrow, your view of this week? Do you have a burden for those who do not know Jesus? Are you concerned for those who do not know what their future holds? Are you ready at this moment if Christ were to return? Have you prepared your heart, your soul? Are you living in faith? How can we do this? How can we prepare ourselves? First, I believe thanking Jesus for the resurrection. It's amazing when you read the Gospels that Jesus chose the cross. Even when he's under Pontius Pilate and he's under all of these authorities, he says, it's not you who put me here. I am choosing this. If I didn't choose this, you couldn't keep me here. I would never have to listen to you. But I choose to be here because this is the only way. Christ chose to die on the cross for our sins. He defeated sin and death so that you and I could have eternal life. Is that something worth being thankful for? Is there anything we could be more thankful for than that? I believe it is unparalleled. Confess your sin. If the sin is the one thing that's going to deter us from living out this life, let's get rid of it. Let's confess it. It no longer has power. It can't control. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to be under its control. You can confess it, and it'll be separated. I heard a pastor say, and I think it's very valuable, if you fall into sin, immediately claim the cross. Turn your heart to the cross. The cross paid for the sin. It doesn't mean we habitually sin or intentionally sin. It means if we sin, go to the cross and move forward. Don't stay stuck in guilt and misery that you offended God and you broke his law by sinning. Because you could never pay for that sin anyway. He's given us victory. He's given us hope. And he says, confess your sins one to another, that you may live the righteousness of God. Today is that day. Every day is a day to say, search me and try me. See if there is any wickedness within me that I may confess and follow you freely. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to his guidance in your life. 
As we study God's Word, the Spirit of God reveals things about our heart, about our motives, about who we are. He stirs passions in our life. He takes us to those things He wants us to focus on. What is He saying to you today? Are you able to listen to the Holy Spirit? Can you discern what God is telling you? And then finally, share your faith. Share your faith. Do you know how many people I know, whether they're an Alabama fan or a Georgia fan, and I've met them for 10 seconds? Because they're so passionately in love with their team that they can't hold it in, that they want you to know how in love they are. What if we were so in love with Jesus that it just bubbled out? We couldn't contain ourselves. This resurrection has changed everything. I can't live the same. I can't, I can't continue to pretend like life is miserable or mundane or boring. How could I ever say that knowing the resurrection is true? That is the prayer I believe that we need to have for ourselves. That we would truly understand who we are in Christ and what he has done for each and every one of us that are his children. This morning, I don't know what the Lord's saying to you, but I do know that he calls upon his body to be faithful and to be committed. And so this morning, let us commit to listening to God and let us commit to sharing this truth with others and that we would grow in our understanding, that we would become more like our Father, more like Christ. What is he saying to you? What is he saying?